hey, we're not getting along, so let's go somewhere where we don't have our friends, we don't have our family, don't know the language, and it'll force us to come together and lean on each other and become a stronger couple. <laughs> that did not happen. But I've seen other people where it did happen, like they became stronger and more more in love. That did not happen to us. It was just highlighting everything even more so of what was wrong in our relationship. It was probably the best thing that ever happened for, for me anyway. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, an award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, podcaster, business strategist, and entrepreneur based in Valencia, Spain. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. Thanks for tuning in for this week's episode. As you may or may not know, we are quickly coming up on the 100th episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And in celebration of this momentous occasion, I will be doing an Ask Me Anything episode. So this is your opportunity to ask me anything, truly, really and truly. If you have a question about moving abroad, living abroad, thriving abroad, living in Spain, being an entrepreneur, the podcast, anything, you can go ahead and ask me. So all you have to do is in the description of this episode, there is a link. It says, ask me anything, hit that link. Or if you're on the email list, it's in one of the emails I've sent you. Just scroll down and there's a link to the ask me anything. Or you can just send me an email or slide in my DMs and ask your question for it to be included in the 100th episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I've already gotten some interesting questions and I can't wait to get the rest and to share with all of you. Now, I do have a request for all of you. And that request is if you have not subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel, go ahead and do that for me. We are on the road to 1,000 subscribers, and honestly, I'd like to hit that sooner rather than later. I have more than 1,000 of you that listen to this podcast, so if you could subscribe to the YouTube channel, Flourish in the Foreign, that would help immensely. When we hit 1,000 subscribers, I will open it up for all of you to decide a YouTube video that I should do, a live or something like that. Maybe it'll be based off of the Ask Me Anything episode, perhaps. But go ahead and support this podcast by subscribing to the YouTube channel. All right, on to the next episode. Season four, episode nine. Today's episode features Shay Hardy, who resides in the Netherlands. 
She is a business consultant and nonprofit founder, and she has such a fascinating story. She has been in the Netherlands for close to 20 years. And to really chat with someone who can reflect on their evolution as a person abroad, I think is such a gift. And so I know you all will enjoy hearing about Shay's story. So without further ado, I will allow Shay to tell you all about it. My name is Shay Hardy. I am 48 years old and I'm living in Amsterdam. I've been living abroad since 2005, so 17 years. My hometown, I claim, is New York. I was born in Brooklyn, but I grew up in the suburbs. My parents were expats. I never knew that or realized that. They came from Jamaica as nurses, and they were the same as any other expat story. They were paid to come to another country and work, and all their expenses were paid for. We didn't travel very much. My dad didn't like to fly, so we did a lot of road trips. I think what expanded things for me in terms of travel was I ran track. I was a sprinter, and through that, I got to travel even more. So we would travel once a year as a family, but then I would travel across America with my team uh, running. And I assume that part of that travel is what opened my eyes that there is more than what's going on at home. I already knew that, but I think that travel or being in different parts of the country and experiencing different parts of the world opened my eyes that there is more than what I'm experiencing at home. I went to St. John's University, which is in New York. I originally wanted to go to Penn State, but I was looking for a full ride, and Penn State only offered a partial ride. And I could have gone other places, but something about not being too far from home, my dad had a conversation with me, which he never gets emotional or vulnerable or anything, and just said that he would miss me too much if I left New York. So I stayed because that's the first time he'd ever gotten emotional about anything. I was like, oh, wow, shoot, I better stay. I studied marketing and focused more on advertising at that time because there used to be a show back in the 80s called One Day at a Time. It was about a woman who was in the ad agency, and I just thought that was really exciting, what she was doing and the little bits of her life that they showed. So I wanted to do that. And I didn't do a study abroad, but I, I went for, I took Spanish one year. We went to Spain for a week and a half or something like that. But it, the week and a half didn't start in Spain. It started in Morocco. And then we went up through to Barcelona, Madrid, Sevilla, and some of the other cities in between. Still quite young. I think I was 16 or 17. And I felt like such a such an adventurer, going away from home to another country. And this is, even though I'd been to Jamaica, Spain felt like I'm leaving, I'm leaving the real world and I'm going to another world and I'm going to experience so many amazing things. Things that I remember vividly is that there were a couple of racist incidents that never left my image of what life is like outside of the U.S., and I went with two of my best friends at the time, and we stuck together like glue the whole time. Both of them, their mothers were Spanish, so they spoke fluently. 
we, I, we had a great time. It was, I got my first kiss in Spain. And we went to a nightclub and this guy just was talking to me. I couldn't hear a word he was saying. It was so loud in there. I was so excited. And then he just leaned over and kissed me. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I ran away. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are the things that I remember vividly about that trip. I never even thought of doing a study abroad. To be fully honest, I never thought of going outside of America ever in my college years anyway. Never even occurred to me to look outside of the U.S. As most of you know who have listened to the show for a while, the journey to going abroad is usually not linear, even for people who always knew they wanted to move abroad. It's not a linear process. So I asked Shay to share with us her journey of moving abroad. Basically, what was going on in her life after she graduated from university, up until she decided to make that leap abroad. If I look back at my life now, everything was geared to creating a life in New York with the right job, with the right husband, and having kids and living that very ordinary life, very conventional life. That's what you're supposed to do. Go to school, get married, have kids live two blocks from your mom's house, <laughs> see them every weekend. And I was pretty much doing that, just creating a career and doing new things. But something was missing. And I was with my ex, my now ex, and I got pregnant. And everything changed. The way I looked at the world changed. Things that I wanted to do with my life changed. Everything changed. I wanted to be the person I wanted my son to be. I didn't want to just tell him to be it. I realized I had to do it in order for him to. And that meant coming outside of my comfort zone, trying new foods, trying new places, facing my fears. And I did all of that to show him that it's possible, that anything is possible. I don't even know if I think about it now, I don't even know why that was coming about. It wasn't as if my parents didn't tell me everything was possible or encouraged me to try new things. My mother was always trying to encourage me to do study abroad or do something outside of the norm. And I think I was just uh, afraid, but I can't even tell you now what that fear was about. And being pregnant, I thought one of the things I want to teach my son is to be unafraid of change. And to embrace it and to think of it as an adventure and not something scary or... So for his, he's now 20, almost 21 years old. And I've done everything I could to put him in uncomfortable situations. <laughs> it sounds very cruel sometimes when I say it out loud, but... I sent him to a Korean school where they only spoke Korean. No one spoke English. And he stayed there for a year. We moved to Amsterdam, where again, he had to be outside of whatever his comfort zone was at the age of three. And I, every chance I got, I would challenge him and I'd say, yeah, you probably don't know anyone here, but we're going to have fun. It's going to be an adventure. And you've probably never tried food here, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be an adventure. As I was being a mom with my ex at the time, I was thinking of all the things I wanted to introduce to my son. 
And like I said, I started off with Korean school and I thought it would be great if we lived in Asia. And I didn't know how to get there, what was going to happen or how I was going to get there. But I knew that was one of the things I wanted to take him outside the country. But my mind was on Asia. I don't know why. I know why, because it's so far out of my comfort zone that I thought that's going to be the greatest learning. Being so far, no language that I can relate to, nothing that I know, it'll be great. I was in law school at the time. I was in my last year and my ex worked for Nike. And he said, what do you want to do when you graduate? We're just having a casual conversation. And I told him, I said, I want to live abroad. I want to live and work abroad and expose our son to what life is like outside of the U.S. And he said, oh, that's cool, but I don't want to do that right now. I'm happy with my job. I'm happy in my career. I don't want to do that. And I said, okay, you don't have to do that. And then we were talking a little bit more. And I think he said, whoever gets a job first, we'll just follow that person with their job. And we'll see how it goes. And I thought, oh, cool. Yeah, that sounds good because I already knew I was pursuing it. So I thought I'll be the one who gets the job and then takes the family abroad. So I went home for the holidays with my son. We had a great Christmas. We came back. And the first thing my ex says is, hey, so I spoke to Nike just to see what they would say. And they said there are two opportunities for me to live abroad for two to three years. I was like, what? That's crazy. We just talked about it like two weeks ago. He's like, yeah, I get to go and look and see and see how that's going to go and what he's going to do. So the option was Amsterdam or Tokyo. Those are two locations. And I thought, yes, Tokyo, that's where we're going to get the most growth because we're going to be forced to think outside of what is normal for us. And he went to visit and he talked to the managers and he said he wanted to go to Amsterdam over Tokyo because he thought the lifestyle would be much easier to acclimate to because it's more like what we have at home. And I kept thinking, that is not a challenge. (laughs) I don't want to leave here to go and live like we're at home in America. That's not a challenge. In terms of preparation to live abroad, I didn't really get to prepare. Nike did this thing where we had like a training session with a guy who tried to teach us some Dutch beforehand and tried to let us know about Dutch culture. But even in that training, it didn't prepare us at all for what we were going into. And at the time I was studying for my bar exam. So I really didn't have the bandwidth to think about that. And then packing up the house and I didn't really get a chance to prepare because He got the offer in March to go to Amsterdam and my finals were in May and we were moving a week after. So I I completely failed the bar because I failed it by two points, which just annoyed me. But I didn't have this brain space to do everything at once. So in terms of preparation, I had none. And I don't think it would have mattered anyway because nothing really prepares you until you get there. That's my feeling. I think even if everyone had told me what to expect, I still would not have been ready for it. I'm always curious about departure day and arrival day. Because if you listen to this podcast, it's a question I ask most of my guests. And it's always 
crazy in so many different ways exemplified by this podcast. There are so many different and chaotic ways for your departure day and arrival day to go. And so I asked Shay to walk us through her day of departure from the United States and her day of arrival in Amsterdam, not for traveling, but to stay. The day we left, we fought. We had a big fight, a huge fight. And I was like, what? What the fuck am I doing? Why? What am I doing? I, this guy is getting on my nerves. We're going to go away to another country where we don't know anyone. We don't know the language. And we're going to get along? I don't think so. There, there was a lot in me that was saying, don't do this. Pull out now. Stay home. Go home. Stay with your mom. Do something else. We can't go with this guy. And then there was like, no, we're already here. <laughs> Everything's packed up. This is it. We're going. We're going. And we're doing this for our son. We're doing it for him. This is going to be a great experience. We're, it's going to be okay. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. And when we landed, it was surreal. It was, I couldn't even explain it. It was like a bit of a fairy tale because it was a little bit of a blur. Maybe there was a little bit of jet lag because we're coming from LA to Amsterdam. So it was morning time, but we were still feeling a bit groggy. Nike put us up in a hotel for about a month and a half which was cool, but not because <laughs> we were in a hotel room, three of us, and trying to realize it's only temporary and my ex was going off to work. So I had to manage the household and a child that wasn't in school yet. So it was a little bit, how do we do all these things? And our apartment wasn't ready yet. It was like a little bit of a roller coaster, but I remember I was feeling very much on a high. I was happy that we were here. And I was looking at everything a lot through my son's eyes, what he was seeing and what he was experiencing and how he was saying things. And I remember he was like, where's that thing, that thing with the wheels? Where is that? Where? Because we were walking and cycling. He's like, where's the thing with the wheels? And we're like, oh, the tram. Yeah, we're going to get on the tram. He's like, no, no, not that, not that. Where's the other thing with the wheels? Couldn't understand what he was trying to say until finally we said the taxi. He's like, yes. Why aren't we in a taxi? Why are we walking? Why are we? What, what's happening right now? We're not in a car. I don't get it because L.A. culture is car culture. Now we're walking and taking public transportation. He's like, what's happening? You're like culture shock for him. At three, where's his car in the car seat? That's what he wanted. So that was kind of cool to see through his eyes that this life has changed. I asked Shay to describe that first year abroad in the Netherlands. The first year was rough on us as a couple. My son, he adapted really quickly. We put him into the British school and he was ready for it. He was there to make friends, meet new people. He was happy. He was super happy, but he was a happy kid anyway. We got into our apartment. We had to set up everything ourselves, and that was new for us. And my ex, he wanted to try to do everything in one go, so it's all there. It doesn't work outside of the U.S. It can't do those things. We went to a store for telephones and electronics and so forth, 
And he went in there and he's just, you know, Mikey gave him a nice budget. So he just picking out everything that he wanted, everything that we needed. I think he came up to a little bit more than five grand and he was like, okay, so I'm getting all this stuff. Can I get a discount? There must be a discount. And the young man was like, no, there's no discount. He, my ex being very American, <laughs> was like, of course there's a discount. There's always a discount. Let me speak to your manager. And he said, no, you can't speak to the manager, which just enraged my ex. And he just started yelling and getting vulgar and just going over the top to the point where this young man just went into the back room and closed the door and left us in the store by ourselves. And we were just standing there and I was just standing there and <laughs> like, oh, okay, so that doesn't work here. Not that was ever my style of approaching things, but that does not work here. So the next day I decided I'm going to go in by myself and see, you know, just try a different approach. I went in, there was a different guy there and I just, I asked for all the same things and I just was more, can you help me? I'm not sure what to do. These are things I'm trying to do. We're just moved here. I don't know all the language or how things work. So maybe you can help me out. Really nice guy. And I think that when I approached it as a, can you help me? I received much more help than my ex did. And we got nice discounts on everything really. And even more support outside the home. I think he came and helped set it up inside the home and gave me some advice on how to do things. Just things he didn't have to do. He was just being really nice. And I, I didn't find work for the first nine months. I was complaining to my son's teacher and another mom heard me and she worked in a bank in the human resources department. And she said, Hey, I heard what you're saying. I can get you an interview, but I can't get you the job. You getting the job is on you. And I was like, still being American. I was like, yeah, sure. Of course I'll get the job. I don't know. Just get me in the door. I can get it. <laughs> and I did get the job and it was such a huge culture shock. Things that I messed up. I asked them how they dress on Friday. I asked them in, in, up front so I don't overdress, underdress, what have you. And they said, oh, it's casual. But casual for the Netherlands is not casual for Americans. I worked in the back office, so not client facing. So I wore sneakers, jeans and came to work. What I didn't know is that there are certain sneakers you cannot wear that they're too casual. So running sneakers are too casual. You can wear more, I don't know how to call them, like designer sneakers, just nice sneakers. Those you can wear, but not running, not sporty sneakers. And I wore a baseball cap in. I took the cap off, but it was such a big deal that I wore a baseball cap. They're like, you're so American. Like, because of a baseball cap? Do you guys not wear baseball caps? We're like, oh, no, we do. <laughs> I don't understand. what It was just different because I did it and the way I put it together. I use a lot of U.S. sayings, but that's not the right word. I'd say things like, yeah, let's throw our hat into the ring. And I'd say they use sports euphemisms. And, and they really, my manager had, after three weeks, she decided that she's going to give me a feedback session. Three weeks. It was time for an evaluation. I just got there. She was like, you use too many of these sayings and phrases. And I don't know what you're saying. And I'd like for you to stop doing that now. I was like, wow. I was like, okay. I just thought it's an international organization. Okay. Could she have said it a different way? Yes. 
it was really the way she put it as if I had done something wrong or can you stop being you? Can you stop being American? Because I don't get it and I don't like it. Fast forward a year later, she's up for a job transfer to go to Atlanta. And she goes to Atlanta. I warned her. So it's going to be a culture shock. Here's what things that you go through. She wrote me a very long email apologizing for the way that she treated me when I first came because she received the same treatment when she got to Atlanta, almost point for point. She apologized how it wasn't fair, was not nice, and that she learned so much from working with me and that I hope our friendship continues, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I was like, wow, <laughs> I knew it would be impactful, but I didn't think it was going to get her to a point to remember how she treated me and then realized that that wasn't cool at all. Social-wise, my ex didn't want to hang out with anyone American, which was a detriment to him because he needed people. He needed to make friends. So he, in a way, without meaning to, he isolated himself because it was harder to make Dutch friends or other international friends because they're a little bit more closed once the especially in Dutch culture. And it's probably like that everywhere where people have not moved. Once they're already friends, they're not looking to bring in new people who are strangers, who aren't from their country, not from their school, not from their any experience that they've had already. So he had a really tough time making friends, having a social life. Whereas I, I just decided I would be friends with whoever wanted to be friends with me back. I just wanted friends. I just wanted a social life and to interact with people. So I did have a mix of American and non-American friends. And I had a much more robust social life. I was out a couple of nights a week. I was doing things and experiencing new things and meeting new people. And he was not, which I think was part of what he ended up being depressed and leaving the Netherlands quite quickly, faster than I thought we had planned. We disagree on that, but he left sooner than I thought we were staying. And I think a lot of it was like he could not get that connection, that he didn't have good friends, people to talk to, commiserate with. It just didn't happen. Now, as I think about it even more, sometimes I wonder if one of the barriers was also because he was a black man, because that's also a cultural difference. If he really wanted to make friends, he was in from a predominantly white environment and white people from the UK, Ireland, Poland, Italy, Germany, their experiences with black American men is few and far between. And here's someone who's trying to befriend them and connect with them and build a relationship in their resistance. I often wonder if that was also a factor and his ability to have a social life. Work culture life, I found I was able to be a rock star in the first day because I didn't leave at five. <laughs> Everyone, I think there's a bell somewhere in their heads and it, it was really like out of a movie, five o'clock on the dot, everyone just stood up and walked out. And I was sitting there thinking, What's happening? Is there a meeting? Was there a fire drill? Did I miss something? Why are we all leaving at five? And then they said, we have families. We have a life outside of work. You can't do everything in one day. It was such a shock to me because coming from New York, 
you work till nine. I get into work at seven in the morning. I work till nine. I have dinner with my colleagues and we go out for another drink or maybe a dance or a poetry reading or something. And then you wake up and I start all over again. I think I slept like five hours a night when I lived in New York when I was younger. And, and that's the work culture that I knew. I was with these people almost all every day from morning till night. And one of the things I appreciate and learned from living here is that balance is a much better way of living and that work will still be there tomorrow. You don't have to finish everything in a day. I still believed in trying to get things back to people as quickly as possible, which did give me an edge over the other Dutch colleagues because I didn't drag it out. I get, I'd respond quickly if I could. And I respond to them and say, Hey, I can't get that answer today, but I'll get back to you Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever. And they really enjoyed that. The managers that I worked with, the clients I had really enjoyed that and asked for me a lot more because of it. Now, when you move abroad, there are some changes that you are expecting and even hoping for. And there are some changes that you are not expecting. And these changes can and will affect all areas of your life. And so I asked Shay, how did moving abroad affect her relationship? So uh, we weren't married, but we're in a committed relationship. So for me... Getting into the relationship, (laughs) I was already losing myself. Uh, I was working on my law degree, and that was mine. That was me. But I was making myself smaller so we would have fewer things to fight about. So he seemed to really always have something to argue about, and I did not want to fight. So I would just try to do whatever I could so we wouldn't fight. When we came... Here, I still behave somewhat the same way, but I was starting to have more life outside of him, outside of our relationship, which didn't bother him. He wasn't jealous or upset by that or anything. He was happy for me, in fact. But he was going through depression and I was thriving. I was living. I was happy. I was... I tried to help him get out of the depression a few times. I realized on the weekends we would stay in bed, all three of us in bed with laptops and order dinner and just stay in bed. And I realized, oh, no, I'm becoming part of the problem. So then I started planning every weekend. We had somewhere to go, something to do. We were out of bed, out of the house, onto something else. And that helped a little bit, but ultimately he wanted to go back home because he felt like he would thrive again if he was home. And he wanted me to go back with him, and I didn't want to because I just started working. It hadn't even been a year yet. And so we made an agreement that I would stay for another year, and and then I would come back to the U.S. But I was not going to go back to the U.S. or to him. I knew that. I think he knew that, but that was never going to happen. I was already a different person. I was flourishing. Our son was flourishing. We were good. Why would I change that to go back to the U.S. where I think he wanted to go live in Oregon, which I was like, oh, God. And Nike, 
And I was like, that's not me. I'm not nature woodsy girl. And nor am I another location where culture is lacking. I can't do that. I, can't. I was like, no, that's not going to happen. And then I'd have to start the whole job thing again, finding a career, creating a network. Like, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, when people ask me what made you come, I always tell people, well, we thought, hey, we're not getting along, so let's go somewhere where we don't have our friends, we don't have our family, don't know the language, and it'll force us to come together and lean on each other and become a stronger couple. <laughs> that did not happen. But I've seen other people where it did happen, like they became stronger and more more in love. That did not happen to us. It was just highlighting everything even more so of what was wrong in our relationship. It was probably the best thing that ever happened for, well, for me anyway. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, be sure to support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign and buying me a coffee. You can also write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and anywhere else you listen to the show. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. Now, back to the episode. Unsurprisingly, moving to a different country where they have a different culture than yours, perhaps speak a different language than you do, it could be difficult to make it actually feel like home, for you to feel settled. And so I asked Shay... At what point did the Netherlands feel like home? I felt at home from the very beginning. I never felt like I was not home. There was something about being here that felt right from the very beginning. Yeah, there were some things I didn't have friends yet. I didn't know the work culture, but I never didn't feel at home. When I walk through Amsterdam, I feel like I'm in Brooklyn. Were, were some parts of Brooklyn. So I just felt relaxed. And what was even better for me is that who I am, and I sometimes attribute that to having Jamaican parents, there is no filter. You're just very direct. <laughs> and in America, I, I, you know, I put a filter in because not everyone can take directness. And here in the Netherlands, they're all for it. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't need a filter. I can say what I think. I can... I'm around things that feel familiar. There's a whole, in New York, we have a, um, this culture of people watching and they have that here too. So you sit in a cafe and you watch people go by and you, you just enjoy life and enjoy the people around you. And I never felt not at home in that sense. The only time I don't feel at home here is the Suarte Pete stuff. And I, I don't know if that's not a feeling at home or I feel traumatized every time that used to come up. But in general, I, I felt comfortable, like a different pair of comfortable jeans. One of the things that has been so rewarding about having this podcast is to hear mothers describe how their children have been influenced, have been affected by their choice to move and live abroad. And so I asked Shay... How does she think her son has been affected 
by living abroad. For my son, I think it was good in a lot of ways. He was exposed to more cultures. And even though I wanted to take him to Asia and expose him to that, he ended up having, when he was very young, his close friends were Japanese and Chinese. And he would go to their house all the time. This one mom would make a make such a big deal about him being there. She'd they'd make they'd learn how to make sushi together, and she'd buy him his special cookies, strawberry cookies from France. <laughs> she just made him feel comfortable and loved and special. Like he never had that. I'm different and I stand out. I think also part of it was the way he is. He's very inclusive as a person. Everyone's invited. He we would have birthday parties, and I'd have to invite the whole class. The whole class has to come. Twenty-seven kids every time. We could not break that down. There wasn't anyone we couldn't not invite. That's just how he was. So being here and being at international schools, he just he. There were definitely times where he, as he got older, that's when the teen years, when it started becoming dating. That's when his skin color and his hair became. He thinks that might have been an issue. I think so, maybe as well in terms of getting dates and talking to girls. I think he. I don't think he wishes he was in the U.S., but I do think he found that a challenge. There were two parts of it, not just the way he looked. He was. Not white, but also he was friends with everyone. He was everyone's friend. He was in the perpetual friend zone with all the girls because <laughs> he treated them really nice. He, if it was cold and they forgot their coat, he would give them his coat. It just—he didn't give off the sexual thing. He gave off the brother thing, the friend, the very close friend vibe energy, and I'm sure that will serve him well as he gets older. But as a teenager, where he's trying to date, that didn't serve him well. The Swarte Pete thing was was a big thing for me and him because it was triggering for me. It was not triggering for him because he didn't know what was happening. But seeing people walk around in blackface and big Afro wig and red lipstick and gold, huge gold earrings, I felt physically ill every season. And I would tell him, I tried to explain to him, we don't celebrate that. I can give you a gift if that's what you want, but we're not going to dress up in in that, and we're not going to go to the parade, and we're not going to. And I explained to him why that was a problem, and he understood to the best that he could at his age. I still got him a toy, I got him a chocolate letter for his name, and I wasn't sure if things were getting, if he was understanding, if he was getting it, and then one day. His Spanish teacher. I put him in after-school activities, and his Spanish teacher said, "I want to apologize to you." And this is a woman who was married to an African man and had they had children. She said, "I want to apologize. I want to talk to you about something." I was like, "Oh, okay." And she ended up also sending me a very long email. But they were in class, and she had given them the assignment to color in Suarte Pete. And my son was like, "No, Swarty Pete is racist." <laughs> he was five or six. He turned the paper over and he started doing something else. He didn't argue with her. He didn't. He just was like, "No,、nope, I'm not going to do that." 
and he did his thing and she was shocked. She thought that he was being disrespectful or trying to be argumentative or she didn't get it. And I thought, how could you not have gotten that? How did you not see that? So she went home to her husband and she told him and he's like, but it is racist. Like she didn't, I don't know, she had blinders. And so they ended up having a whole conversation about it. And she emailed, she talked to me in person and emailed me and gave me a whole long explanation about how she was so blind and how could she have been so ignorant and how she didn't realize that and how much my son taught her just by saying, no, I'm not going to do that and standing up for himself. Even if he didn't have a clear idea what he was standing up for, he was just like, no, I'm not going to color your swarty paper. So something was sinking in. Fast forward a few years after that, maybe five or six years later, they had a Dutch teacher who insisted that the N-word was not a bad word in her class and proceeded to use it on multiple occasions. And I was enraged. I was ready to go down to school. He's no mom. I'm going to handle this. His classmates were also enraged because they're a bunch of, uh, yeah, they're educated. (laughs) They're international school. They're very educated. They're well-versed in what's okay and what's not okay. Not just from school, but also their parents. And they stood up to the teacher and they told her off in class. They reported her to the head of the department They didn't let it go for weeks. They kept harassing that she needs to do something about it. I went to the head of the department anyway, and I said, this is not right. Something needs to happen. I was actually pushing for her to be fired, but that you can't get fired that easily in the Netherlands. And they looked at it as a learning period and they'd write something. It takes about three years to get someone fired in the, in, in the Netherlands. It's not a, you did something. It's not like the U S you have a right to be employed. So No one gets fired on the spot. We'll just put you through training and retrain you and make you better. Anyway, it turned out that the teacher ended up coming and apologizing to the class. She said I was wrong. There's still a lot for me to learn. And I will not be using that word in class anymore. And then the next time she tried to explain why she was right. (laughs) why it was a learning moment for them, more so than for her. So he had all of these experiences. And what his dad and I would do is when he would travel to America, my ex, his dad would take him to all of the things that are Black American culture, Black universities, and just anything where he could see where we're from and what we're about and what we do and who we are, that Black is beautiful, that we're successful if he had any opportunity, his dad would take him to see basketball players' homes, their lives, how they're living. He'd get our son in front of them so he could ask them, what did you do to succeed? How did you overcome things? Learn more about success from our perspective and that we do thrive as a culture and as a race, as a people, because it's hard to see that here in the Netherlands. It's really hard to see people of color thriving successfully in media, in politics, in in all those spaces. One thing I thought was interesting during COVID when everything was happening, my son was like, I realized that I have some privilege here. And I was like, how so? And he said, no one's ever used the N-word on me. 
No one's ever made me feel so other that I didn't like the color of my skin or the way my hair was. I never had that experience. He's like, and I think that's a privilege in my life to be able to go through life not having that that knot in your stomach or that anger because someone's called you a racial slur. I was like, oh, wow, that's that's interesting. I've had the N-word used on me plenty of times in America. So I have that experience, but he doesn't even know. (laughs) I'm like, oh, you're in this beautiful little bubble. I don't know what happens next for him, but I'm glad that he's well aware of that is a privilege. And also that there's the opposite, not having that privilege. He adapts to change extremely well. He's now in Colorado. I have no friends or family there. No one, no one, nada. I don't know anyone, nothing. And he's thriving, successful, getting straight A's, living his life, waking up at four in the morning and running for a bus. He doesn't have a car and he's doing well. (laughs) I'm like, wow. He's like, yeah, I figured it out. I got it together. So I think living here has accomplished the plan that I had in terms of helping him learn how to adapt and work within change and chaos and the not knowing and feel comfortable in that and be able to work through it. I think that was a benefit for him, maybe a detriment. But because he's living in America, he doesn't know our swag. I don't know if you're, if you, he doesn't have that oomph that we move different. We talk different and it's natural and it flows and we turn it on and off. And he does he only has one, the European international school kid vibe. And there's nothing wrong with that. But now he's in America and he's trying to find that, that black American vibe and that swag and that natural bravada and that natural flow, that ease of the way we talk and say things with confidence. And he doesn't, he has it, but he doesn't. I don't know if I explained that well. He'll get there in his own way and it'll be his own style and it'll be perfect. But it's interesting to see him. I saw some of his videos. I'm like, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, that's the word you use, but it sounds weird when you say it. Does it sound, is it that natural flow? But it's great. It's great to watch him go and do that and figuring it out and then at some point, he'll create his own flow, and it'll be just right. And so we talk about kids, so we must talk about motherhood, yes? And so I asked Shay how her experience in view of motherhood has been influenced by her living in the Netherlands. So I have two kids, talking a lot about the first child because he's my oldest, and he came with me, so he came in as an American, but I have a child that... I gave birth to here in the Netherlands. And it's like night and day in a lot of ways. I'm very grateful for being a mother here in the Netherlands versus being a mother in the U.S. I see how my cousin, who I'm very close with, and other friends who I'm very close with, and I know that if I was there, my, my mothering or parenting style would be very much like them, which has a sense of helicoptery and watching where everyone is and what they're doing and That's not how we grew up. It's just the consequences of media and other 
influences when you're living in the U.S., other dynamics that come into play that kind of put you into this. I have to be eyes on my kids, know where they are at all times and all places all the time. When I came here for my son, he had so much freedom. And when I would share that with my friends, they were shocked. Oh, we could go to a store and he could walk around the store and I wouldn't see him and I would be okay. He would be okay. And we were fine. I was able to let him explore the world more in his own way, in his own style, in his own pace. And I didn't have the fear because I didn't raise him in the U.S., I didn't have the concerns that you often get of someone taking your child or something happening or, or even some, your child breaking something or getting hurt. I didn't have that fear or concern. I thought I, because it wasn't there, I just thought it would be, everything would be okay. So I didn't worry and nothing happened, but I think that was also a consequence of where I am right now. I don't know. I think living here, kids here have more independence, which in a way, to me, they sometimes, some kids, not all, feel like they're adults, that they're my level and they're not. That's one thing that I see is different and I try to adjust because that's not how I was raised. We had strict boundaries and how you talk to your parents and what you say to them. I normally had a really good role model when we lived in LA. This mom, she was from New York, she was a dancer and she was like, in my house, these are my rules and you don't call me by my first name. I, re- I require respect, so you will call me either Miss blah, 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 or Mrs. last name. And I thought, oh, that I like that, because she you could be who you are, but in my space, this is my space, these are my boundaries, this is a, the way I want to be shown respect. And so with, with my son's friends, I do pretty much the same. Like, in this house, we don't curse. In the Netherlands, kids curse, and they use curse words, and... Dutch kids use it because American curse words are not Dutch curse words. So it's not a curse word to them to say, fuck, shit, all that stuff. And I'm like, but that is a curse word. (laughs) Even if it's not in your language, it's still a curse word. Why do you say it so freely? This little boy, he's four. He's like, fuck, shit, mom, I'm not doing it. I don't want to fucking clean up this shit. (laughs) No, that's not going to be okay. Not here. No, (laughs) we don't talk like that. No, not here. Not allowed in this house. And that's just how I try to create my own boundaries with other cultures, that this is what I this is what I'm comfortable with. And I don't want you to cross that boundary. I don't have any regrets about being here as a mom. With my second child, my second son, it's very different. He has a Dutch father, so there's a balance. Maybe not balance is not the right word, but we have to try to balance our parenting styles. And he's taken a little bit from me. I've taken a little bit from him. In some ways, he's much more nurturing than I am. I have this story. This is how I knew I was going to marry this guy. I was with my, the three of us were together, myself, him, and my son. I just bought my son a, a bike and we were riding home. He was riding on the bike and I guess he hit a curb or a rock or whatever. And he fell off of his bike. And I said, you're okay. Get up. You're fine. Dust yourself off. You're okay. Come on. And my husband was like, no, stay where you are. Are you okay? Are you hurt anywhere? 
<laughs> you don't have to, you fell. It's okay that you want to cry. It's okay if you're hurt. It's okay. You don't have to get up and dust yourself off. No, you're a child. You're allowed to be hurt. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, of course he's allowed to be hurt. Of course. Why can't he cry for the moment? He fell down. It would be a normal thing to cry. He's seven or eight at the time. And I learned from that, that there's a time for everything and, and you give the space for that. I asked Shay about her experience with the Dutch healthcare system. I have my own issues with the Dutch healthcare system. For the most part, everything can be cured with paracetamol, which is just Tylenol. Take a Tylenol, you'll be fine. Everything is, take paracetamol, you'll be fine. You go to a doctor, I don't feel good, something's wrong. I think my arm is sore. Paracetamol, call me tomorrow. Paracetamol. It's like the heal-all drug. So we constantly make non-Dutch people constantly, and I think maybe even Dutch people now, make jokes about this. Their whole way of viewing things is that there is no prevention. We don't do preventative care here. Uh, which annoys me because in the U.S. we do so much preventative. We try to do preventative care, and they don't see that. They're like, if it's not broken, why would you go looking for it to be broken? (laughs) To prevent it from breaking, to make sure things are good. Oh, God. One year I was so sick, and I had a very low-grade fever, but I was dragging, and I was going to work anyway because... I was sick for over a month. Couldn't figure out what it was. And I was like, okay, my husband's like, you have to go to the doctor now. You have to see what it is because it's not going away. And every day you're feeling like this. I went to the doctor, told him what what was happening. And he said, it's either virus or bacterial infection. And I said, okay. And this is how I had to treat him. I said, I had to act with the please help me perspective and that I'm curious and in a sense I'm an idiot so walk me through it tell me (laughs) talk to me like I'm an idiot and I said so if it's a virus what what would I do he says nothing you could do with a virus it just has to run its course fine I was like and if it's bacteria he's like then you get antibiotics and you get some help and I this is how I'm talking to him I was like and how would I know if it's a virus or a bacteria infection and he said with virus you have a flu and you have a fever and with bacteria sometimes you you can only tell if you take a test and I was like and is it hard to take the test he's oh no it's really easy you could do it in the office it takes two minutes can I take the test (laughs) oh yeah sure you could take the test right now we take the test and he's like before I even take the test he's still trying to convince me it's probably just a virus It needs to run its course. And I was like, it's been five weeks. It's not a virus anymore. Something's wrong. I take the test. Normally, and I forget the name of the cells, but normally you're supposed to have 92 of these bacterial cells, he called it. I had 230. He's like, oh, you're sick. Like, yes. (laughs) Yes, I'm sick. Please, oh, they don't want to give you pain meds. They don't want to give you antibiotics. But he, because of that test, he was convinced I was sick, not from anything I said or not even, he didn't even want to check. I was basically pulling it out of him. If it's so easy, why can't we just go check it now? 
and it's really hard. I have a Dutch husband and the Dutch culture here is that you just believe whatever your doctor says and that's it's done. I come from a U.S. culture, plus my parents are working healthcare. And so they're like, no, you get a second opinion. It, the first opinion is not enough. They, no, and no one's perfect. These are human beings trying to make a diagnosis. And they keep telling him, you have to advocate for her. You have to advocate for yourself. She has to advocate for you. You have to advocate for her. And they just keep beating him over the head with this. Like when she's sick, you have to take care and step up. I, I was starting to have high blood pressure during COVID. And I'm like, I don't feel good. This is not, something's not right. Something's not right. I just, something is off. And I was also stressed with work and there were a whole bunch of things. So I had a new doctor. He's like, whatever you want, let's go get tested. Let's go figure out what, what's going on. And let's check your heart. Let's check your lungs. Let's check everything. I was like, oh my God, this is the best doctor ever. He's finally listening and doing stuff. And he had to go on holiday. So his other, his partner took over. There's nothing in the test. You're healthy, no diabetes, nothing with your lungs. Your heart is great. Your blood pressure is a little bit high. This is what we can do. You seem insistent that something is wrong. And we start talking about work and panic attacks and stress and blah, blah, blah. He's the other thing you're doing. I had a home, a blood pressure machine at home. When I was taking my blood pressure every day, I was so obsessed with it. He's you seem obsessed with this now. Maybe what you could do is come here every day and we'll take your blood pressure. We'll keep record of it and we'll see if we can get you to lower it on your own. And I start to get upset. I need more than that. I'm because I'd already been here years now with paracetamol. We're not doing anything. You're fine. So now I'm in, in year 15 or 14 living here. And he's, oh, no, everything's fine. Don't do anything. Leave it alone. And something he said made me realize that there are aspects of that are very good. He said, I can put you on heart medication and you don't really need it right now. And it'll lower things down for you and you'll feel great. But at the point where you're ready to come off of it, it's going to be a struggle. And you might have to live with heart medication when you don't really need it. I'm not giving you drugs because I don't think you need it yet. And I think we could do other things before we get to the point of getting you to, of putting you on medication that you don't need. And that kind of sat with me because I realized in the U.S. we over-medicate people a lot. And I realized that there might be a benefit here to take a paracetamol and let's see what happens. Let's not immediately go into fix-it mode. Let's see what we can do before we get to a point. And it doesn't, it's not perfect. I think there's some benefit to not just medicating everything and seeing can we do something else first. I asked Shay, how has her career evolved during her time abroad? When I first came here, I got work in corporation and banking, which was good for me. I'd, I'd worked in banking before, so it was an easy fit. And they put me back in HR again, which was fine, even though I was looking for something around law since I just graduated from law school. So I stayed there and they made me redundant. So I got laid off. And that was really scary at first because it, it made me think, this was before, just around the time actually I'd met my husband, just after I was made redundant. 
but it was a question of whether I'm going to stay in the country or go back home and start over again. And so that was a struggle at first, just figuring that out and what to do because you don't have a network here. I didn't go to school with most of the people here. I didn't have an alumni support system here. And I decided to go into consulting, which is great because here, compared to living in New York and even in L.A., pay here is not what I'm used to. It was working in the bank, even though they were like, but we're paying you so much for them. They thought it was a lot. And I was like, this is like half of what I would be making if I was in New York right now. They're like, but you're not in New York right now. Fair enough. Plus the taxes here are very high. And I think it's been adjusted now. But back then, every penny that you make over 50,000, one euro is charged at 52% tax. So it, even what they, even making more money, you don't bring home as much. And I know that some people here in the Netherlands look for jobs to stay under that 50%, to always stay under the 50%. It's increased over 50, or under the 52%, sorry. The breaking line has increased. I think it's more than 50,000 now, but still, it's a big deal. But as a consultant, I got to adjust that to what would work well for me because I was paying my own taxes. I had more things to write off. I had, my take-home was much better. I was making closer to what I would expect to make in the U.S., so I was very happy doing it in the beginning, and I started to enjoy it quite a lot, but I felt a bit... There were parts of it, the longer I kept doing it, there were parts of it that I didn't enjoy because a lot of the work revolved around finding a way to downsize departments in a way that made people feel okay with it. So it was change management, but my role in it was always like, yeah, is there a way that you can communicate and get people involved so that they could see the benefit of what we're trying to do here? Like making a 243 people department into a 50 people department. People are going to be upset. Yeah, of course they will. Yeah, of course. But can we let them feel engaged about the whole thing? <laughs> and you do the first time you do, it, you're like, oh, that's a nice challenge. How can I do that? What can I do? Do it a couple more times. You tweak it and you learn new things. And at the end, it's no, this is not right. This doesn't feel right for me. I don't feel good about what I'm doing. I don't feel, you're not really making change. You're just letting people go. That's not change management. That's more like just whole redundancy management. And what ended up happening while I was doing that is I started taking coaching, training, becoming a corporate and business coach at some point. And I, I ran into a woman while I was still working as a consultant, I also had an Airbnb. I was doing a lot. And the, I had a woman who was helping me out with my Airbnb. And she was unemployed at the time. And she's just looking for a side hustle, something to do until she found some work again, which she felt pretty confident when I first met her. It wouldn't take very long. And I remember when I first met her, she said, just so you know, I probably won't be here that long, just a couple of months and I will. But then I'll leave and I was like, oh, that's fine. I'll find someone else. We, she ended up staying with me for three years. 
she was a psychologist who spoke five languages and was super smart, really nice, but for some reason couldn't seem to find work. And I didn't know how I could help her because even though I was learning coaching and everything, I didn't feel it was right for me to be the one to coach her. So I reached out to my network and I said, does anyone offer coaching for free? Because I knew she was a single mom as well. So I knew her spending money for a coach would be, no, I can't do that. I don't have extra money for that. And I reached out to my community and I got some really positive responses and I got some negative responses. And two women that I already knew, one had been my coach and the other was a friend of mine. Her son and my son are best friends and we became friends. And she, both of them approached me separately and they said, Hey, saw what you put out there on Facebook and we would love to work with you on it. And I was like, Whoa, I'm not working on anything. I'm not doing anything. I'm just looking for help for this one woman that I know. And that's it. And we, I said, let's all three meet. And we met and we started talking about it. And we said, let's try. And I didn't really have any expectations at that time for it. That became a foundation where we work with immigrants who are living in the Netherlands and they're unemployed. And we give them resources, coaching, information, anything that we can provide, we provide for them to help them get back out there looking for work again. Because so much of what we do in our day-to-day life is attached to our identity and who we are. And when you're not working, if you're not okay with that, it starts to tear at you and start to create other issues, mental health issues, physical issues that we could maybe prevent. So as as we set that out, we became, first we were just working on immigrants in the Netherlands, but now we've grown out to, okay, it's not just about immigrants, it's about any underserved or underrepresented group. We want to provide, we want to make things accessible. That was our main thing. This information coaching is accessible to high-level executives and accessible to all these other people. It should also be accessible to anyone else who needs it. We should be able to find a price point or something that can help you improve your socioeconomic situation, to help you improve your life, to help you go back to feeling whole again, if that's what needs to be done. And now we do immigrants and we do women in STEM, which is close to my heart because I feel like when it comes to the science and technology space, we don't have enough women in that leadership space. We don't have enough leader, female leaders not just at leadership, but at senior executive board level. The decision makers who have a direct impact on how we live our lives. And we want to be a part of making a change there. And if anyone is interested in helping me, they can reach us at www.empowermentfoundation.work. Wellness. I asked Shay to describe her personal definition of wellness and how that definition, that concept, that practice of wellness has evolved during her time living in the Netherlands. Wellness is such a broad, it's become so broad now for me because of so many different areas, mental well-being, mental wellness, physical wellness, spiritual wellness. I think that is all encompassing into how I define wellness. Living abroad, I think the first, it's 
gone into different stages or different steps as I've lived here. I've learned first that just finding balance in my giving work, it's time and space and giving not working, which could be anything that's not related to work, giving that it's time and space has been very, become very important to me that I learn. And it's still a process sometimes because I think I'm still American in that way. I love what I do as well. So that helps, but still taking the time to stop and do something else and making time to do something else for me that hasn't, doesn't have to do at work or with the family. That's very important for my well-being. And I think also what I've now, I have a spiritual family that are very religious and I've always been more spiritual than religious. But I think being here even more, I've delved into that side of being connected not just with myself, with being present in the moment. I'm not a big on nature, but walking through the park is becoming more important. Taking walks, being outside, COVID created a big, big influence on what that means to connect and how much my well-being needs to have contact with other people, not just within my family, but being able to reach out and touch other people and be in the presence and environment of other people. And I think that living here, I, yeah, I had to, it started off with just work-life balance and it just continues to grow. I'm not there yet. I don't think, no, I know I'm not there yet, but for me, it's a process of still finding ways to keep incorporating that into my life on a regular basis. Thank you so much, Shay, for sharing your incredible story with all of us. If you're interested in keeping up with Shay, you can via social media. So you can find my Women in STEM organization, which is just budding. It's as a community. It's called Winnovate, W-E-N-O-V-A-T-E. And we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and LinkedIn. You can find us there, connect with us, tell us how you're feeling about what you're experiencing as a woman in STEM. There's also Empowerment Foundation, and you can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and just reach out to us and follow us for tips on career advice, entrepreneurship, and anything that you want to have access to when it comes to your career. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And for more information about our guest, be sure to check out this episode's show notes on the website, flourishtotheforeign.com. That's where you'll see pictures, a full bio, and ways that you can connect with this guest. And if you or someone you know are interested in becoming a guest on the Flourish in the Foreign podcast, simply go to the website and fill out the guest inquiry form. You can find that at flourishintheforeign.com slash contact. If you are looking to move abroad and you want to do so with intention and you have no game plan or you're kind of nervous about your game plan, I invite you to take the Move Abroad with Intention course, which is a five-week self-study course designed to help you go from intention and defining what a life well-lived means to you to money management, employment, employment 
deciding what to pack, what to leave, all the way to settling in and how to develop and nurture a community in your new country. Go as fast or as slow as you like because you always have access to it. You can sign up for the course at flourishsomeforeign.com or there's a link in the description of this episode. Big thanks to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I firmly believe that I would not know what wellness is had I not lived in Medellin, Colombia for three years. I would not know what it's like to be intentional about my health and have peace about that. I would not know what it's like to be financially strengthen and be able to walk through life in abundance.